a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Suspect faked other pregnancies, husband says. Read the headline in the Springfield News Leader on October 10th, 2007. The suspect in question is 36-year-old convenience store employee, Lisa Montgomery. The article says Lisa told her husband, Kevin, she was pregnant, and he believed her. She'd gained weight, she went to appointments with a fertility doctor. Next thing he knew, he had a baby. On December 16th, 2004, Lisa called him and simply said, I've had the baby and need to be picked up at the restaurant Long John Silver. Kevin didn't think anything strange was going on. But her neighbors were skeptical. They told the paper she'd faked pregnancies before. But when Kevin Montgomery showed up at the fast food restaurant, there she was, baby in hand. Kevin looked across the street from the restaurant and saw a women's clinic. So he thinks she must have had the baby there. Kevin was elated. It had long been his dream to have a baby with the woman he loved. But his excitement would be short-lived because he'll soon find out that baby girl isn't Lisa's. She wasn't even adopted. She was stolen. And one stayed over, her mother lies dead in her home. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. 2000, Lisa marries Kevin Montgomery, and the first thing on her mind is, when are they going to have more kids? A little about Lisa. Lisa is a thin, sweet 36-year-old woman with blondish brown hair and glasses and a tendency to sort of get lost in her own world. Kevin is an electrician, and whatever thought comes up in your mind of a guy named Kevin who's an electrician, that's, that's what he looks like. You're correct. Yeah, you're correct. That image is correct. And and he loves Lisa. They live on a little farm in a small town in Kansas, in Melbourne, and they raise livestock and spin wool. Sounds fun. Sometimes Lisa even butchers the pigs on their farm for food. That sounds way less fun. Well, it's a farm-to-table sort of thing. I think it's nice. Um, she's desperate for a baby, which is... Uh, well, a little strange. She's already had kids, actually four of them from a previous marriage. But they're all in their teenage years now, and three of them still live with Lisa and Kevin. But on top of that, her husband Kevin also has three of his own kids from a previous marriage, but they all live with his ex-wife. But you'd think with Lisa and Kevin having all of these kids, you'd think that they'd be good. But I think because they're married, they want to mix their own DNA and have their own kid. But I, th- I think it's important to know that Lisa's kids will later tell you that their household was a tough place to grow up. There was some neglect happening. It wasn't sort of the happy picture of farm-to-table 
spinning wool that you might believe based on what we said. Um, but Lisa and Kevin want another kid. And it seems that Lisa is paranoid that Kevin will leave her. So in her mind, she needs this baby to keep him forever. So this town is small. It's only got about 450 people in it. And Lisa doesn't know a lot of them. She's not real social. She doesn't go out to church or karaoke or anything. And when she does talk to the neighbors, they feel like something is a little off. People that meet her will describe her as having a screw loose. One of the things really standing out to them is that she has this tendency to claim that she's pregnant real frequently when they believe she is not. She's the girl who cried pregnant is who she is. And here's here's some examples of that. So two years after she and Kevin get married, Lisa claims, despite not looking pregnant, that she is, in fact, pregnant. When her neighbors point out that she looks really tiny and how is it possible that you are with child, she says she always has small babies. And then suddenly, Lisa does this really bizarre thing She tells Kevin she needs to go to Mexico to abort the baby, which I know we've laid out that they've wanted a kid for this whole time, but she has to go to Mexico and she comes back and she's no longer pregnant. And to the town, this feels like proof that she was faking it the whole time. Right. They they don't believe her and they don't believe her when she says she's pregnant a year later. But with that pregnancy, she says she carried the baby all the way to term. And then at nine months, she had a stillbirth. So one day she was pregnant. And again, she's now not. There's no funeral for this baby. And Lisa says that she donates the baby's body to science. Kevin continues to believe her. And I think it's important to know that Kevin's ex-wife actually suffered a stillbirth and It appears that Kevin is bringing some of this trauma into this, and he won't, he's not gonna question Lisa. I mean, it's an incredibly traumatic thing to go through, and and he takes her at her word. He believes her. But there is a pretty good reason why he shouldn't, which is that according to Lisa's ex husband, Carl, in 1990, Lisa had tubal ligation surgery, which means that it's not possible. For her to have a baby again. With four kids in their home, Carl claims that Lisa agreed it was the best thing for their family. But clearly, 10 years later, she doesn't feel the same way. That can happen. You can change your mind. Kevin knows about the tubal ligation too, but he doesn't understand what it means. He doesn't realize it means you can't have a baby. Listen, our country's sex education is really lacking. Maybe he didn't pay attention in sex education or he never really looked into what tubal ligation meant. But every time she says she's pregnant, he believes Lisa. He sticks by her through thick and thin, through pregnant and not pregnant. The whole way he's by her side. But there is more to Lisa than just the faked pregnancies. In addition to the pregnancies the making of the wool, the butchering of their own pigs. She also raises animals, and she breeds rat terriers. 
listen, I'm not into rat terriers, but I'm not going to yuck anyone's yum. Like she's really into that. So one report says on a cold day, it's November, 2003, Lisa Montgomery takes her rat terriers to an outdoor dog show. And she's there to show off the pedigree of her dogs, maybe even sell some puppies. And after trading dogs in cold weather, Lisa and the other breeders, they go to a little cafe afterwards. And at that cafe, Lisa runs into a fellow breeder, Bobby Joe Stinnett. She's 23 years old with dark bangs, brown eyes, and just a few months earlier, she has gotten married to her high school sweetheart. And her terriers, I don't know a lot about terriers, but I know this, they are well pedigreed. She has a website where she sells puppies and talks to other people that are breeders and buyers, and she's She's a real active member of the Rat Terrier message board community. Um, this message board we're going to talk to you about in particular is called Ratter Chatter. Uh, I love I it. I tried to think of a better name for a website like that, and there isn't one. I challenge any of you out there right now, a Rat Terrier message board better than Ratter Chatter. Tell us. Ratter Chatter wins the day. Uh, but speaking of uh, high quality... Lisa tells the group that her dogs have really excellent pedigrees like Bobby Joe's. But when a buyer demands records, word spreads that her dogs are not up to American Kennel Club standards. She's lying. Which, based on what we've told you about Lisa lying about pregnancies, lying about her dog's pedigree, it just feels very on brand for her. So flash forward, it is April 2004. Lisa goes to another breeder event in Kansas with her rat terriers and her daughter, who is also interested in breeding rat terriers. And there, her daughter meets Bobby Joe. And Bobby Joe is sweet and kind and generous and lovely. And Lisa's daughter and Bobby Joe become friends. She really likes her. And it's at this event that Lisa also notices that Bobby Joe is pregnant. She is about four months along. Coincidentally, Lisa says she's pregnant too and tells her husband Kevin at this point that she's carrying twins. Now this time, Lisa actually starts gaining weight. She starts to look pregnant. She starts to go to prenatal care visits. And Kevin is so excited and he wants to go with Lisa to the doctor's appointments, but she doesn't let him. He doesn't doubt that she's having a baby, and he tells the local pastor that when he put his hand on her tummy, he felt the baby kick. But even the local pastor is skeptical that she's pregnant. Well, you know there's a problem when God doesn't believe you. Totally. And and the community finds out that she's quote-unquote pregnant, and they again don't believe it. And at this point, Lisa is laying it on thick that she is, in fact, pregnant. She is taking herself and her maternity clothes all around town. She's going to basketball games. She's going to baseball games, making a show that she is pregnant. And perhaps out of curiosity, but at this time... In advance of her due date, she looks into how cesarean sections are performed. She downloads the video explaining the process, and she studies it closely. So on one tab on her computer, she's pulled up these cesarean section videos. And on another tab, she's got to be on ratter chatter. She's thinking about those rat terriers. And Bobby Joe Stinnett comes to mind. Uh, Lisa's also a member of these fabulous 
ratter chatter message boards where you post pictures of your dogs and she's posting ones of hers saying things like, I cannot get down on the floor to take better pictures due to being pregnant and getting back up is a story in itself. She's talking about how she's due to give birth in a few days. You know, I just have to say, with a bunch of like-minded rat terrier lovers just talking about their love of rat terriers, what could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what. In December of 2004, Lisa Montgomery logs into Ratter Chatter under a different name. She creates an account under the name Darlene Fisher with the username Fisher4Kids. Which, to me, I gotta say, that freaked me out because that's a little on the nose. Maybe her first choice was a gal with questionable motives, but that was taken. Um, Carrie, are you too young to remember message boards? It's, Can I say yes, even though it's a lie? <laughs> well, these message boards, they're, they're like the comment section of Facebook, but without neo-Nazis. I mean, oh. Well, sometimes there's probably neo-Nazis in the neo-Nazi chat board, but not on Ratter Chatter. Ratter Chatter, and I want to be clear about this, was strictly for Ratter Chatter. Yeah, you know what? You can't... Their rules of engagement on those message boards were really strict. I just can't get over this Fisher for kids. I mean, obviously, Quinn and I know where this story is going, but it's just such a sinister name because a few days after Lisa posts these pictures of her terriers complaining about getting up off the floor whilst pregnant, Darlene posts a public message asking for Bobby Joe to get in contact with her soon, claiming that she wants to buy one of Bobby Joe's puppies. Now, Bobby Joe replies to her that night, Darlene, I've emailed you with the directions so we can meet. I do so hope that the email reaches you. Great chatting with you on Messenger and do look forward to chatting with you tomorrow a.m. The next morning, on December 16th, 2004, Lisa walks into her daughter's room and tells her she's driving to Topeka to go shopping for the new baby. On her way out of the house, she walks into the kitchen and she grabs a paring knife and slips it into her pocket. On her way out of town, she stops at the market and she tells the person working that today is the day, her water's gonna break, and she says that she's already having labor pains. Lisa then proceeds to drive three hours to Skidmore, Missouri, following the directions Bobby Joe gave her the night before. At around 3.15, Lisa knocks on Bobby Joe's door. Now, Bobby's expecting to see this woman Darlene, but when she opens the door, instead, she sees her acquaintance and fellow terrier breeder, Lisa Montgomery. She must be thinking, this is a weird coincidence. Or maybe in this moment, Lisa fesses up to being Darlene. We can really only guess what is being said. But what is certain is that Bobby Joe is standing there eight months pregnant with a baby girl, and Lisa is standing there with a paring knife in her pocket. Now, at this same time, Bobby Joe's mother, Becky Harper, starts walking to her daughter's house. She tried to call Bobby a couple times before she left, but got no answer. She's worried. Her blink tells her something is wrong, and you always have to trust your blink. Now, it takes her about eight minutes to get to her daughter's house. It's 3.26 p.m. When she walks up to the front door, it is wide open. She walks into her daughter's home and she calls out Bobby Joe's name. 
There's no answer. She turns into the living room, and Bobby Joe's body is there. She's lying on the floor. There is blood everywhere. At first, Becky Harper processes it like it's a prank. I think it's her mind's way of protecting itself, but then it sinks in. She doesn't even have time to scream. She just pulls out her phone in this instant and calls emergency responders. And then as soon as they pick up, everything she's holding in is pouring out of her. My baby is dead, she screams. She's still trying to make sense of what she's looking at. She screams through her tears. It looks like her stomach exploded. When Sheriff Ben Espy arrives on the scene, Becky is on the phone with 911 and she's performing CPR on her daughter. And he knows immediately that she's gone. He asks Bobby Joe's mother to step aside and he continues compressions. Because as policy dictates, if someone starts compressions, you have to continue until there is someone that can call the time of death. Becky tells him that her daughter is, or was, eight months pregnant. It isn't until the paramedics arrive and pull Sheriff Espy aside that reality sinks in. He sees Bobby Joe's body and he realizes the baby has been cut out. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. What happened at Bobby Joe's house that December morning in 2004 can only really be known by Lisa and Bobby Joe. But from the evidence and Lisa's own recollection, here's what police think happened. Bobby Joe invites Lisa into her living room, and the two of them talk for a moment about rat terriers. When Bobby Joe is turned, her back is to Lisa to open the cage, Lisa loops a rope around her neck and she pulls hard. And within seconds, Bobby Joe loses consciousness and falls backwards into Lisa's arms. So now an eight-month pregnant Bobby Joe is lying on the ground. She's due to give birth in January, but I'm sure you guys already figured out that Lisa has other plans. And she pulls out that paring knife she brought from home and begins cutting, just like she saw in the cesarean how-to video online. But Bobby Joe isn't dead. Midway through the procedure, she wakes up. So Bobby Joe comes to and she feels this 
horrible pain in her gut, and she sees Lisa kneeling over her. So Bobby Joe fights like hell. She rips Lisa's hair out, she scratches her, but she's already been cut. She's losing blood. So she's weak, getting weaker by the minute, and she screams and she fights until Lisa gets that rope again and brings it around her neck one last time. Once Bobby Joe is dead, Lisa finishes the procedure. She cuts Bobby Joe's baby out of her body and leaves Bobby Joe dead on the floor of her own home. My heart breaks for this little girl because I will tell you because I think you deserve some good news as the baby does survive. I think you've earned after hearing that, but the baby does survive. Upon viewing this crime scene, the sheriff's first instinct is, Bobby Joe's partner committed the crime, right? Because when you're looking at something that is this brutal, this personal, the first place you have to check is the significant other. So, that morning, Bobby Joe's husband kisses her goodbye, and he goes off to work about 20 minutes from their home. His alibi is rock solid. But then Becky gives Sheriff Espy a clue. She tells the sheriff that that day Bobby Joe was supposed to meet a woman named Darlene Fisher. And when forensic scientists arrive on the scene, they find long blonde hairs in Bobby Joe's hand. This is proof that she fought back against her attacker, and the sheriff realizes that this means they have DNA to match with her killer. Oh, and another clue. A neighbor tells the sheriff that he saw a red car with an H on the hood that was parked in the driveway around the same time as the murder. So for now, Sheriff Espy wants to send out this Amber Alert, right? But there's a problem. For one, they don't even know that the baby's alive and they don't know what the baby looks like. And also, they've never actually issued an Amber Alert for a fetus. So there's this really heated exchange in the police department over whether they're even allowed to send this Amber Alert. Usually they do need more information, but the sheriff refuses to let these dumb procedural rules stand in his way, and they finally send out this Amber Alert. Phew! <sighs> I'm, like, Phew. Feel, I'm just feeling for him. I'm like, I cannot imagine bureaucracy totally. coming into the picture in a moment like this where you say, "We've abs- I just saw this woman, her body, with a baby cut out of it, I'm going to have to tell this woman's husband this happened. We need to find this child if they are still alive. We need to find them and to have your boss say to you, well, uh, paragraph C, and it's like, no, we're doing this. And I think, too, it's like at this point, Bobby Joe is gone. So all their hopes, all their hopes and resolution lie in in finding this baby. Give, Give Becky this baby, right? She just lost her daughter. You better go get her her granddaughter. At this point, Bobby Joe's death hits the news and it goes crazy. It reaches the message boards of Ratter Chatter and Bobby Joe is a known entity. People love her. People know her. And so in the forum, people are starting to share condolences and memories of Bobby Joe. And at this time, they kind of become armchair detectives in a way. The members of this forum sort of see what messages were shared publicly, and it's then that they see the post between Darlene Fisher, Fisher for kids, and Bobby Joe. And this woman, Diane Sicktar, she's a fellow rat terrier breeder. She's on this site, and she 
is known for, quote, noticing things. So she notices these messages between Darlene Fisher, Fisher for Kids, and Bobby Joe, and there's something about the name Fisher for Kids and finding out what happened to Bobby Joe that her blink goes off and she calls the FBI. They connect her right away to the lead investigator, and she tells him all about the Ratter Chatter message boards. And they already knew about this Darlene Fisher, but they didn't know that there was a record of it, that it's all online. Right. They got that information from Becky. But in addition, this just adds to the case. Now, meanwhile, Lisa, with the newborn baby, is back in Kansas, and she doesn't waste any time spreading the news of her birth. The first thing she does is she drives back to Kansas, and she calls Kevin, her husband, and she tells him, hey, I've had the baby. Please pick me up at the Long John Silvers right across the street from a woman's clinic. Now, he's ecstatic. Finally, his dream is coming true. He has a beautiful baby girl. And Lisa calls her family, gives them the good news. And though some of them have doubted her in the past and maybe even doubt this phone call, you really can't deny that there's a baby in her arms. Lisa calls the pastor, bet she was excited to rub that one in, tells him the good news and says she wants to name her baby Abigail, a name from the Bible. So the next morning, Lisa goes to the church and she goes to get the baby blessed by the pastor. And he immediately notices that there's an inch-long wound above the baby's eye and another wound below the baby's eye. And there's some bruising on her chin and on the right side of her face. And the baby, he notices, looks like neither of her parents. And he notices the baby has really long fingers, but neither parents have very long fingers. Yeah, I don't, I gotta say, like, most newborns don't look like their parents. So I, I think the pastor had a bad feeling and in retrospect will remember thinking they didn't look alike. But really, he has a bad feeling for a reason. And he's not the only one with bad vibes because after church, Lisa takes the baby to a local diner and she just plops that car seat in the booth and she and Kevin are eating their eggs, eating their toast and... The diner owner comes out just irate with them and says, you don't bring a newborn out in public. Really, you don't. You don't. You don't. (laughs) Go home. You don't. In addition to getting the baby blessed and bringing it to a diner, they also go to the courthouse with the baby, the bank with the baby, and the convenience store with the baby. It's like it's like a parade of look at the baby I had. And Lisa gloats to her neighbors. It's almost like, see, I proved you all wrong. And all of them would say, you know, we didn't know you were pregnant. And she would say, you know, most people didn't. Because she wasn't. Because she wasn't. All this gloating, it's going to come back to haunt Lisa because word is spreading about this new baby and people are getting suspicious. One woman who saw the Amber Alert decides to call the FBI tip line and she tells the investigators about Lisa Montgomery and all those fake pregnancies. And now Lisa's carrying a baby around town. The FBI pounces on this. They are sure Lisa must be the killer, and they set out to hunt her down. In addition, they now have the Ratter Chatter board, and from there they can find the IP address used to send Darlene Fisher's messages. And in doing so, they're able to pinpoint the source in Melbourne, Kansas, and it belongs to the server that is listed under the name Kevin Montgomery. 
So the police race to the Montgomery's home and they set up watch. And it's only been a day since the murder of Bobby Joe, but every second counts. And the police watch the Montgomery home and nobody seems to be there. So they stake it out and they wait from a distance so that the Montgomery's cannot see them waiting. And they wait and wait. And meanwhile, Lisa's all around town just parading Bobby Joe's baby. When there's no more parading to be done, she's been everywhere. Lisa and Kevin head home and their red car pulls up to the house and it matches that description of the car at Bobby Joe's house. They get out and Lisa goes to the back seat of the car to get the baby. They walk into the house through the side porch where a refrigerator and rusted washing machine sit on a rotting pine porch. And the police calmly approach the door and knock. Kevin answers and lets them in, and they spy Lisa in the living room with the baby on her lap watching TV. The Amber Alert is scrolling across the bottom of the screen. They approach Lisa and ask her to hand over the baby, and Lisa plays dumb. Why? What's going on? She says. One investigator told KCTV5 out of Kansas City that he could tell she was pretending. She stood up, and she fake walked like a woman had just given birth, um, like it was painful for her. And in another interview, that investigator told KQTV2 out of St. Joseph, Missouri, that her fingers said it all. I looked down at her hands. I could actually see dried blood and tissue in her cuticles and under her nails. So the police are confident that this is their missing baby, miraculously alive. So they take Bobby Joe's baby and they race off to the hospital. I'm not glad they're right, but I also am because that's a pretty bold move to just walk into somebody's living room and take their newborn. Yeah, but it's not like they didn't have a mountain of evidence proving that this was Bobby Joe's baby. I mean, at the same time, the doctors had been telling the police how important it was for the baby to get checked out. Now, they're a race against the clock. The baby is not only premature, but was taken out We don't know if the mother was dead or alive while the baby, and so the oxygen supply. There's just a lot of things that could have gone wrong. And so they're desperate to get this baby into the hands of medical professionals. And I think at this point, it's just take the baby now, ask questions later. They're just trying to save this baby. At this point, police immediately separate Kevin and Lisa and begin their interrogation. And poor Kevin seems, you know, pretty clueless. As far as he knew, his wife had given birth a few days before and... Through several hours of questioning, this is his story, and it stays the same. Now, Lisa briefly tries to claim innocence and keep up the ruse that this is her baby, but she has cuts all over her fingers. She has blonde streaks in her hair that matches the hair found in Bobby Joe's hand, and the baby she has is a day or two old. It's not long before she begins to cry and admits that she lied to her husband about giving birth to the child, and she confesses to everything, including the murder of Bobby Joe and the forced removal of the baby. She even told them about the bloody towels, the knife, and the rope that still are in her trunk. Now, this story travels all over the world. In Australia, the headlines read, Womb Snatch Killer. In South Africa, Womb Theft Baby. It spreads to Russia and Japan and England. And of course, it's all over the papers in the U.S. Now, this is a a pretty clear-cut case, right? With the DNA evidence and the confession, there's no way Lisa Montgomery could possibly escape conviction. The real question is, will she be sent to prison for life or will she be put to death? 
whether Lisa is going to live or die hinges on everything but the crime itself. Her defense is going to claim insanity, and her team is not great. One of her lawyers is the only trial lawyer in Kansas who had multiple clients executed on federal death row at the time. And I want to be clear, this is tried as a federal case because it's kidnapping, and in addition, she brought the baby over state lines. So this is a capital case. This is a federal case. And the evidence that her lawyers have gathered to prove that she is insane is not compelling. Her attorney tries to argue that she has a case of pseudosiasis, which is a false pregnancy. This comes about from her trauma that she experienced in her past. But this isn't enough to prove insanity, which is a huge burden to clear in a capital case. In fact, proving insanity in a capital case only works 1% of the time. So the odds are stacked against her. Well, they did get one thing right. Lisa had a very traumatic past. In fact, her lawyers really should have looked into it more. And for this, we're going to wind back several decades to when Lisa is a child and talk to you more about this past. Now, I want to be clear. We're going to discuss Lisa's background. But please know that this does not in any way take away from the horrific crime against Bobby Joe. But we feel it's really important to discuss the fact that Lisa was also a victim of a crime, of many crimes. And the question is, is should she be put to death? Lisa Montgomery grew up in a very unstable household. Her father abandoned them when she was young. She had several half-siblings, and her mother remarried several times. When Lisa was a preteen, her stepfather raped her. Constantly, he allegedly built a shed in his backyard where he and his friends would take turns raping her and pee on her when they were done. At the age of 15, Lisa's mother catches her husband on top of Lisa, catches him in the act. But she doesn't blame her husband. She blames her daughter, Lisa. And the abuse only gets worse from there. Lisa's mother would use her as a bargaining chip with repairmen. Instead of paying them with money, she would let them rape her daughter. And when Lisa was 18 and extremely traumatized from years of abuse, Lisa marries Carl her stepbrother from her mother's fourth husband. Carl's the man who encouraged her to get that tubal ligation. And whether she wanted that surgery or not, Lisa's family members have told investigators that they witnessed Carl raping and beating Lisa on video. Lisa's whole family just treated her like she was worthless. And the people that were supposed to love her in this lifetime clearly didn't. And oh, maybe worst of all, teenage Lisa told several people that this was going on. She told her cousin, who was a police officer. She even told a judge. But no one ever did anything to stop the abuse. Again, we're not telling you all of this to justify Lisa Montgomery's actions, but to rather point out that her lawyers didn't bring up all this stuff in her defense. In the murder trial, prosecutors would accuse Lisa of willingly participating in the actions of her stepfather. The same thing her mother essentially did. And it makes you wonder, regardless of being actually insane, the, the trauma she endured affected her beyond comprehension. And while she did deserve to be punished for her crime, was it truly just to sentence her to death? So the jury 
doesn't buy the defense's attempt to claim insanity, and it takes them only four hours to convict Lisa Montgomery of murder and only an additional five hours to decide that she should be put to death. Kevin is heartbroken, and on the way out of the courthouse, Kevin is approached by KMBC 9 News. He has this pained expression on his face when he answers their question. The prosecutor gave you a circus. It's pretty bad. We don't want to tell one side, sir. It's pretty bad when you think there's a winner in this. When you get married, you take a promise. We got backed up. I don't take it lightly. Lisa hires a new legal team after the conviction, and they would find that all of the abuse she suffered as a child caused her to develop complex PTSD, dissociative disorder, psychosis, a traumatic brain injury, and on top of that, she had bipolar disorder and temporal lobe epilepsy. Her team files for appeal after appeal to reduce her sentence from death to life in prison, but all of these appeals are rejected. On January 13th, 2021, at around one in the morning, Lisa Montgomery is wheeled into the execution chamber. She is described as bewildered, which her legal team will call a dissociative episode. They wouldn't allow her to have a spiritual advisor in the room when they put the IV in and administered the deadly drugs. Lisa Montgomery is pronounced dead at 1.31 a.m., She's the first woman to be executed in 67 years. So nobody, nobody wins here. I felt sick and sad reading about the horrible things that Lisa Montgomery did to Bobby Joe and her daughter. And then I felt sick all over again hearing that Lisa was put to death because to me, putting her to death, that's not justice. This is a very sick woman. You know, I read that it took her a month to learn how to make her bed in prison. She is not functioning at a normal level. And I was also just really struck by something that a reporter at the New York Times said, Rachel Louise Snyder. Abuse is cumulative. Traumatic brain injuries are cumulative. Punch after punch, kick after kick, rape after rape. Injured brains do not heal like injured bodies. Does it excuse in any way, shape, or form what she did to Bobby Joe and Bobby Joe's mother and Bobby Joe's husband and the baby that she left behind. Absolutely not. In no way does it excuse that. But I think life in prison would have been justice better served. I agree. I want to end this episode in a bright spot because it's it's been really dark. But I just want to say I'm so grateful that Bobby Joe's baby was found and reunited with her family and that she gets to live a life that is surrounded by love and hear all about the wonderful things her mother was. Hey, y'all, let's all take a deep breath because that was a lot. That was a lot. We know we don't do cheery content normally, but that one was a doozy. Particularly heavy, and we hope you're all okay. Um, Thanks for sticking with it and hearing this story because dark as it is, we feel like it's an important one to tell. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. 
check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it might just be the case we talk about next. We used many sources to tell today's stories. Among them, we found the following sources particularly helpful. Murder in the Heartland by M. William Phelps, an article from Rolling Stone titled Lisa Montgomery Suffered Years of Abuse, The United States Killed Her Anyway by Hannah Murphy Winter. We highly recommend you check these out if you want to learn more. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins and Julie Magruder. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Carrie Ipema and Quinlan Posner. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our researcher is Emma Frederick. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.